This is Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and on the podcast today, Dr. Gang Zhen, an award-winning senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre and one of UHN's inventors of the year. Dr. Zheng is a research pioneer in the field of nanomedicine. His lab is developing next-generation tools to assist imaging in more accurately pinpointing cancer tumors. And he's discovered less toxic, more targeted and effective methods to eradicating cancer. Dr. Gang Zhen, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Thank you for having me. Big picture first, the field of nanomedicine. It's been dubbed the science of small, and that's because it's predicated on the use of nanoparticles. So let's begin there for the uninitiated like myself. What is a nanoparticle? So nanoparticle is about size. A nanoparticle is about uh, 100,000 anywhere from a million size smaller than a human hair, right? Human in the bio- Yeah. In a biological context, if you consider what are the nanoparticle kind of size, you can picture yourself a virus, right? The most popular virus, the most one in our mind is COVID, SARS-CoV-2. And the COVID virus is about 100 nanometer size. Another one which is in our mind is mRNA vaccine for the COVID. And mRNA is about two nanometer size. So if you picture yourself a nanoparticle, the size is between an mRNA and a COVID virus, right? That's probably the size part. But nanoparticle cannot be called nanoparticle if you don't make it man-made or intelligently designed to serve a function. If you design a nanoparticle for human medical use, that's called nanomedicine. All right, so medical research has spent decades investigating all sorts of uses for nanoparticles, such as contrasting agent in imaging, a drug delivery vehicle. What's the advantage here over existing methods? I think the first thing is nanoparticles, the nano size has its unique properties. I can give you a few examples. For example, iron oxide is everywhere. But iron oxide nanoparticle, when it's actually getting smaller, as small as like less than 10 nanometer size, it actually presents itself a unique superparametric properties, which you can use in for MI contrast. Anything above 10 nanometer, that, that property disappeared. So the nanoscale property is a very unique. And you can also say, for example, gold, right? Gold is yellow, right? You bought gold. But once you go to the gold nanoparticle, different size of gold nanoparticle can make up a full spectrum of different color, right? That can have a potential, a lot of application for like optical imaging for different things. So the size of nanoparticle is the number one property because they give you the new, unique nanoscale property. The second, I would say, is the, the nanoparticle because they are similar to a lot of machinery in the body, like the virus, RNA, DNA. So the nanoparticle is like a bio size, what I would call. So that means they interact seamlessly with like cells within the body. So people are using the nano, take advantage of these size advantage of nanoparticle for the disease detection and treatment in general. And when you say the nanoparticle is man-made, if it is used inside the body, does the body see it as self or is it potentially rejecting the nanoparticle? That's a beautiful question. And just like anything you get into the body, the body will reject it, right? Because otherwise we won't survive. (laughs) But the intelligent design, the man-made means you have to find a way to make a nanoparticle get into the body without the human cells recognized as a falling subject. So you can actually evading the humans, like, a, for example, you can, what they call the don't eat me signals. You decorate nanoparticle with this don't eat me signal, then the microphage won't eat it up. And they actually can serve their own function. And your field, of course, is cancer research. What is it about the cancer tumor that makes it so attractive to nanoparticles? Yeah, that's actually a great question. The cancer in the solid tumor particular, has two distinct features. 
One is because of the disorganized rapid growth of the tumor cells, they can always form these kind of torturous vessels, right? So the vessel is a lot of leakage of vessels. Second point of the cancer is you have impaired lymphatic system. So imagine you have a nanoparticle circulating in the bloodstream and they actually get into the near the tumors. Then because of leaky vessel, the nanoparticle will actually permit through these vessels getting to the tumors. But because of the drainage, usually the working drainage, the lymphatic works beautifully to clean up everything else, right? But the lymphatic system is poorly drained. That means you got going through the tumor and got stuck. So this so-called enhanced permeability retention effect is also one of the key hallmark of nanoparticle, nanomedicine, because they afford some degree of passive accumulation in the tumor, makes the nanoparticle like to be almost like, say, affinity to the tumors. So that's interesting. Are you able to, again, in layman's terms, explain to me then, what is it that the nanoparticle is so attracted to in terms of, say, the leaky vessel or being able to permeate these vessels? What is it about the properties of the nanoparticle that promotes Nice. It's about size. You know, the nanoparticle actually don't go through the vessel easily, regular vessel. The nanoparticle, that particular vessel, the particular size, match up very well with leaky vessel. So anything up below 150 nanometers, about 200 nanometers, you will permit through the vessel going to the tumor. If you have a particle like a micron size, it won't go through. So it is a nanoparticle size makes them go to the tumor through this effect. Obviously, this is heterogeneous. There are many different tumors, different tumor type, all different. But most nanoparticles have some degree of tumor selectivity because of this size advantage. All right, let's turn to your groundbreaking work and your lab. You actually developed your own nanoparticle, the porphosome. <laughs> porphosome. Porphosome. <laughs> porphosome, right. Porphosome. Yes. Back in 2011, a discovery that's, I should... Pat you on the back, been recognized as a top 10 cancer breakthrough. Now, in part because its benefit, I guess, is that it's called the Swiss Army knife of nanoparticles. It can be used as a drug delivery vehicle. It helps diagnostic imaging because they light up when exposed to light. And when they absorb the light, they can heat up, which allows them then to apparently reduce or even eliminate a cancer tumor. So let's start with your discovery. How did you come up with the porphosome? So... At the very beginning, we would just try to use lipid nanoparticle, right? It's a the, lipid nano, nano. It's a lipid nanoparticle. Lipid nanoparticle is commonly used now, very famous now, because they are the one who actually, by Moderna and Pfizer, which is used in the mRNA vaccine because they're based on the lipid nanoparticle. So now I'm pretty sure everyone knows what lipid nanoparticle is now. So initially, our idea is very simple. We want to use lipid nanoparticle to deliver high dose of light active drug for treating the cancer through the laser ablation therapy. And that light active drug is called, are called porphyrins. And they're often actually known, these porphyrins often as known as a color of life. Why we say that? Because it is everywhere in the nature. In your body, why the blood is red is because blood is having the hemoglobin. Hemoglobin contains a red iron porphyrin that makes the blood red. Obviously, the most important because of color is because it delivers oxygen, right? And in nature also, the grass is green, the leaves is green, spinach is green because they have a chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is a green magnesium porphyrin. And that's why the people call the color of life. But for our purpose, the porphyrin molecule we use particularly is literally coming from Spirulina algae from the Pacific island of Hawaii. For those of health conscious, you added these Spirulina algae into your smoothies. And these are the ones who consider like a superfood. We basically took this superfood extract a core of porphyrin out of that using our starting material. Uh, (laughs) This is like a form of algae. Yeah, it's a form of algae. Long story short, we were trying to loading these particular porphyrin into lipid nanoparticle, but we failed because 
the porphyrin is bulky. They just uh, broke up the nanoparticle. So we thought, since the lipid nanoparticle is made with lipid, lipid kind of fat, right, fat molecule, and what if we link porphyrin, these chlorophyll, onto this fat molecule, onto lipid? So we form porphyrin lipid, essentially the chlorophyll fat. And we thought the lipid nanoparticle should have a better chance to recognize this fat molecule analog, which has porphyrin on it, so they can load more. But little we know, the rest really is the history, because once we made this porphyrin fat molecule, porphyrin lipid, they self-assembled into lipid nanoparticle without any help of the regular lipid. That was completely astonishing, and we would never thought of that. And that's where porphyrin is actually discovered. But once it's discovered, we actually find there are so fascinating properties associated with these porphyrin nanoparticles. Imagine each porphyrin is made about 100,000 porphyrin lipid molecule by themselves. Each porphyrin lipid has a porphyrin. Porphyrin absorb light. They dye, right? They pigment. When you have 100,000 of them, you absorb tons of light. They behave like a black hole, right? What black hole does, absorb everything, light energy. The only thing came up is by the heat. So that's why we saw porphyrin made away single pigment molecule, pigment fat molecule, can actually become so much, generate so much heat from the light, can destroy the tumor. So we can use that to ablate the tumor by the photothermal therapy. So right afterwards, we actually figured out, oh, not only you can do photothermal ablation, you can use that for fluorescence guided surgery, you can use that for PET and MI scanning, you know, for imaging detection, tumor detection, can use that for ultrasound, CT, the whole nine yard. And that's where this one-stop shopping nanoparticle based on single molecule is made so exciting. I want to get into, drill down to each of these uses that you talk about, but I'm just curious when you made this discovery, you know, what was your reaction when you realized you had created this all-in-one nanoparticle? First is disbelief. Disbelief. <laughs> because we never thought it can happen, right? We never thought the molecule can self-assemble. But once it's formed, I was really literally jump upside down if I could. <laughs> because imagine you have a molecule now, form this nanoparticle, 100,000 of them lying together, perfect shape. Then all these new nanoscale property, what I'm talking about, which is associated with the nanoparticle, we're creating so many new functions which never existed before. So that's actually the, from the very beginning of the disbelief to the super, super hyped. Then we realize we get back to work. We have to make sure it is useful for cancer patients, but that is a long journey. <laughs> yeah. yes. All right, let's start with the potential for advancing imaging. What have you shown the porphosome can do in your lab when it comes to, I understand this is with animal models, what have you shown so far? The whole nine yards, to be honest. <laughs> so we actually proved the porphosome's many utility, most importantly, their tumor selectivity in many different models, preclinical models, and many different cancer types. Just not complete set, the cancer type we actually covered, lung, prostate, head, neck, ovarian, endometrial, pancreas, brain, thyroid, collateral, just to name a few. And we actually tested our different models in different species. And we have demonstrated many different utilities, but that's allow us because of intrinsic multifunctional of the porphosome. It allow us to pick and choose different function for different clinical application. Really, that's what the beauty of the porphosome is. And if you could then, gang, explain to us how it's advancing imaging. Let's take the fluorescence guide surgery as an example. You may consider porphosome's fluorescence like homing beacon, shining, and it will help surgeon to easily identify the tumor and to delineate the tumor margin because they were showing up the tumor differentiate from the surrounding. That will help the surgeon to more accurately, you know, resecting the tumor with a minimally invasive way. So that's one 
potential imaging application. But what's make Porphyson really exciting is not just a homing beacon. You may even consider as a killer beacon. Homing beacon is to show where the tumor is. But because of the function of polyphosome allow us to do the ablation, the cancers. Imagine a surgeon cutting the tumors. You don't see anything anymore. The fluorescence is clear. You will never know there is a tumor cells will left behind. That's where the cause of the tumor occurrence. But because of the polyphosome has therapeutic function, not just homing beacon, as it has a killer beacon function, if you shine a light, it actually generating either by the heat or by the chemical reactive oxygen species that will kill the tumor cells left behind. So it's almost like a surgical bed cleaning. So the killer beacon is what's differentiate porphyson from the smart fluorescence tracer, fluorescent probes. How do you deliver the porphyson nanoparticle into the body? Circulation, so the intravenous administration. So it's a simple IV. And Simple IV travels because it knows to travel towards the cancer tumor. And then you say when you expose it to light to help light up a tumor, how do you light it up? Light has limited penetration depths. And that's usually is one of the key limitations of any light-based therapy. But laser advancement, combination of the fiber technology, nowadays is making the light can be delivered pretty much anywhere in the body. Nice. through the fiber and the laser. In fact, in one of our works collaborating with uh, Kazu Yasufuku, the lung surgeon and a Japanese fiber company, we were able to deliver the light through the bronchoscope, through the fiber, almost through the entire lung. Right. Because the fiber is so thin, is less than one millimeter in diameter. We can, we can deliver both the light for the imaging light and the treatment light. So technology advancement nowadays can make the light delivery become more practical and useful. Is there a danger of when the porphyrosome is exposed to light and it heats up, which is a positive because it can ablate the tumor, but is there a danger of it heating up too much and damaging a patient? Oh, not, a, not at all. It is a, the tissue overheating, which caused the collateral damage, is one of the key considerations. In fact, for all thermal therapy, ablation therapy, not just the photo, just light, but also radio frequency, high field, high intensity focus ultrasound, anything to do with the thermal ablation, you have to watch how the temperature goes. Usually accomplish that by using very precise MI thermometry, essentially using magnetic resonance imaging as a way to control monitoring the temperature. That is actually quite expensive because imagine all these therapy, you have to be under the MI magnet. So we actually came up with the idea to creating this a new generation of porphosome with a, almost like you would consider like a building thermostat. As soon as reaching the temperature, what I desired temperature, it tripped, it tell me to stop. This way we're solving the problem right. of the overheating. We actually have a nice name for this agent. We call it Pearl. The lady liked the pearl, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the jewelry. You know, it stands for photothermal enhancing auto-regulated lipid nanoparticles. Okay, of course it's an acronym. All right. <laughs> That's what the Canadian, um, when I come to Canada, the one thing I learn a lot is about acronym. So talk to us then about to date, what kind of results are you getting with the porphosome in terms of as a agent for helping surgery and or in terms of reducing cancer tumors? What are you seeing? I think the area it most likely will have the biggest impact is the imaging guided, minimally invasive intervention of early stage cancers. Again, I like to use a lung cancer example because there is a huge success, particularly in Canada, the nationwide early lung cancer screening and the risk stratification having achieved amazing result, actually reduced the mortality rate of lung cancer. But it's also generating a question, which is a, a challenge, I would say. That is, there will be so many patients to be diagnosed with early lung cancer. What do you do with them? Especially there is a, 
a not small population of these lung cancer patients are medically inoperable. So what do you do with them, right? So really there is unmet need to come up with a minimally invasive way to intercept these early cancer, which is one of the key goals of our Princess Margaret. Our idea is using what is minimally invasive way. We want to using a diagnostic bronchoscope, transbronchially, that means through the bronchoscope, usually using for diagnosis for biopsy, we will feed the fiber into it. We will use this fiber to find the tumor behind the bronchial by the fluorescence shining up by the porphosome. Not only we can detect this tumor behind the bronchial to allow us to do imaging, to do the biopsy, we don't need to do that. We will just stick the fiber in and to ablate it. And this way, we can turn a diagnostic procedure into an early cancer intercept procedure. So as same like a similar situation, the prostate, thyroid, as the cancer detection becomes more and more popular and more successful, we have to find a way to treating these cancer at early stage without impact their daily life. So that's where personally I see the porphosome we have the biggest impact for. That's amazing. So talk to us about the kind of results though that you're getting. Let's say, for example, endometrial cancer. We were in endometrial cancer we were actually able to achieve a porphosome-enabled fluorescence guide surgery with about 100%, close to 100% sensitivity and 67% of specificity, which is not ideal, but is already a major progress over the current way. And that is important because most of these used to be the endometrial cancer. These early patients are treated by the complete infodectomy. You removed all lymph nodes associated, which is having tons of problems, right? And now people try to move away from this using the sentinel lymph node mapping, try to a less invasive way. Because if you do the lymphodectomy, you actually using for taking all the lymph nodes, imagine you will forever be lymphedemia. You rely on the drugs and you are only for the diagnosis purpose. You not have any treatment value. That's like such a brutal method. And people try to moving away from that. And Sentinel is actually see where the drainage is. But endometrial cancer has a very complex drainage pattern. So if you're using Sentinel inject in directly sub-Q, you will missing about 15% of these patients. So using porphosome giving IV and the porphosome getting into this tumor, in as small as one or two millimeters, we were able to detect by porphosome to able to guiding this lymph node uh, dissection better. So these are the results we are getting, right? So there is many different cancers we're working on. That. Let's talk about translation in terms of lab to benefiting patients. When do you see moving out of animal models into clinical trials? Porphosome was discovered 2011. Right. The paper published. We are now 2021. Correct. We're not standing still. And this is a long bumpy journey, we are almost made entirely through. And we were able, fortunately, we don't have any commercial support yet, but we were fortunately supported by academic risk grants, by the Terry Fox, for example, the program project grant, by the CCI, I mean, the Canadian Cancer Society, but most important by our Princess Margaret Cancer Center Foundation. And we were able to uh, not just demonstrate all the utility selectivity in all the model I mentioned before, we actually able to accomplish the toxicity study. We proved porphosome is safe to use. We were also able to getting the skill up manufacturing done. We ought to even actually get a clinical formulation ready. Wow. So we are now in the process of discussing with Health Canada, essentially for the clinical trial application. So if all went well, and uh, we should see first patient in March 2022, next year. Amazing. Yeah. Obviously, this is a huge undertaking, right? Mm-hmm. I pretty much have all my best best friends are clinicians covering all the specialties. And that's how it make, make the work. <laughs> There's actually an, another use we should touch on for your porphosome discovery, and that's 
as a drug delivery vehicle. What results are you seeing there? Pofosone, by definition, is a lipid nanoparticle, right? Lipid nanoparticle now is on top of the world because of COVID vaccine. But in fact, lipid nanoparticle have been using over many years, in some of many of them already in clinical approval stage, clinical approval, FDA approved, is for the chemotherapy delivery. For the drug delivery, which means it's covering from anywhere from small molecule chemotherapy drug to protein, like antibody, to nucleic acid, like RNA. So what porphosome does, it adding a component of control. Porphyrin, giving its imaging capability, help to be a guided delivery. Porphyrin, as a, by control by the light, it has given us a like, trigger for controlled release of the drug into a more efficient way. So porphosome has drug delivery function as a lipid nanoparticle, but adding something extra flavor to it. It's like an elegance to the delivery of the drug in a way that's way more, I guess, better for the body. In theory. <laughs> Still an investigational stage, yes. I'm curious, what's been the reaction to your discovery of the porphosome from the medical research world? I think that we were very humbled by the very positive reaction when the porphosome was discovered because everybody was excited, not just because this porphosome is a new novel cancer serenostics. Serenostic means therapy and diagnostic, right? You can do different functions. The fact is the intrinsic multifunctional property of the porphosome is inspired a new generation of nanomedicine design, right? Always used to be nanomedicine. You talk about nanoparticle is a Lego concept, having different function come together like Swiss knife. But porphosome is different than Swiss knife because it is made with a single component having all different functions. And that, in theory, should help the clinical translation because it makes it so much simpler. If you based on one component, it will be much easier to track to see how they degrade in vivo, how the fate in vivo, so it will be more easy to be translated. But this is only the theoretical benefit. But in reality, it's new chemical entity. You still have to go through very stringent FDA and health care requirement. But it is our belief when this kind of design concept eventually will help the speed of the translation. Because imagine the since they are made in with a single component, if that component is demonstrated to be safe in patient, then all of a sudden, everybody can test all their different function in different cancer. I don't need to get in a next approval, next approval to do all this, thing, right? So this concept, one for all concept, has been picking up in the mainstay, mainstay of the nanomedicine research. So I'm very gratified to see that happens. You've been quoted as saying nanomedicine, big picture, is at a tipping point. How so? I have to say, two years ago, very few people in the world know what nanomedicine is. They may heard about it, but they say they feel like it's too far. It's like a futuristic. But when everyone had a, your Pfizer or Moderna vaccine in your arms, which is made by lipid nanoparticles, deliver the mRNA vaccine, you have a first experience, you're encountered with the word nanomedicine. That's the best with nanomedicine at work. And that changed the perception. It also bring almost like gold rush now in everybody trying to deliver nanoparticle, nanomedicine for cancer vaccine, for all kinds of imaging treatment and everything. And when you have the buying of the public. And, you know, no one should underestimate the human creative nature, right? Our generation. And this is, that's the way I said, it's a golden age of nanomedicine is reaching very quickly, reaching tipping point. It was like a order of magnitude of how many nanoparticles get into clinical trial. You know, this is the last two years versus like 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, you know, sooner or later, there will be benefit will be realized in patient. Hopefully, we will be part of that contributor as well. You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it. 
at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Gang Zhen, an award-winning senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. Dr. Zhang's pioneering research in the field of nanomedicine is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to Dr. Zhang's groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.thepmcf.ca and click on the Donate Now button. Now, gang, I want to go back in time to examine your origin story. You were born and raised in Hangzhou, China. That's uh, about 175 kilometers southwest of Shanghai. And you have this amazing family tradition. Your grandfather, your parents were all academics, all in the field of chemistry. You follow the family tradition. You got your degree in chemistry as well in 1988. I'm curious how that family academic tradition has shaped or influenced your career. First, uh, my grandfather's industrial chemist, one of the first generation of Chinese students to study abroad in the early 20th centuries. He went to France in Lyon. <laughs> Indeed, the chemistry, I have my chemistry blood. <laughs> so I'm always a chemist. So that's, uh, that's what's the family's contribution. But what's the difference make? How I become a cancer researcher? That's probably a more interesting story to tell. Go ahead. So I'm an organic chemist by training, undergraduate, master degree. In 1994, I get a New York State Fellowship to study PhD at uh, SUNY Buffalo, State University of New York at Buffalo. And particularly the offer came not from the Department of Chemistry, is coming from a Roswell Park Cancer Institute. I'm always knowing, you know, being a chemist, you can make the drug, you can potentially use it for patient benefit, but that's very distant. When I get an opportunity to study chemistry in a cancer center, got my instantly go up. On the first day of my lab visit, Professor Tom Stoddy, who is a pioneer, they call him father of PDT, photodiode therapy. He told me and a bunch two other students, fellow students say, come with me. I will give you a tool. So I started going to the chemistry lab, showing the you know, film hertz in snow. He actually took us to the surgical suite. And we were on top of the glass dome, seeing the surgical, the cirrhotic surgery, operating a patient. We were in the glass dome watch, and he basically told us, this is the photodynamic therapy at work. Essentially, the patient was pre-injected with a light-active drug, the porphine I mentioned, that was invented by Tom Dolly. So that drug was infused 24 hours ahead of time, then the patient accumulating the tumor because the porphine affinity to the tumor. Then the patients under the operation opened the cirrhotic surgery. Then we see the technician, laser technician at the second floor together with us, have feeding the fiber all the way to the patient's cavity, then shine the light. And that's he told, Dr. Dolly told me that combination of the light and the drug and oxygen in the body will creating cytotoxic, you know, react oxygen species to kill the cancer cells. I mean, imagine the wildness at the first day of your PhD, you know, program. You instead of went to a lab, you went to a surgical suite and you see the light going to the patient's body. You see the cancer patient being treated on the spot. That shock, wow, like completely overtaking you. It didn't take me like two minutes to say, this is a lab I want to be in. So I joined the, my PhD lab is actually called Photodynamic Therapy Center at Rosal Park Cancer Institute. And the lab is made with chemists, biophysicists, biologists, dermatologists, you know, physicians, pathologists, the whole thing. And that's kind of like a culture. It's like a lightning struck, right? So that's your, that's your aha moment. That's how I got into cancer research. 1994, I still remember in September. 
I want to just one other thing I want to go back to talk about in terms of your coming to North America because it speaks to your determination and motivation is you're in a foreign country, no family, and limited English. This is early 90s. Terrible, when... terrible English. Not limited. <laughs> so talk to us about how you overcome those obstacles to get where you are today. What motivated you? It's the drive, right? It's really uh, as simple as that. Once you have a goal in mind, you want to make some positive contribution to the society. And you have to learn, you have to adapt, you have to overcome all these challenges. I'm one of the millions and millions of foreign students and take on, the fo- take on the foreign land without even speak. I couldn't even talk to a taxi, taxi driver where I'm going, right? <laughs> I show everybody my admission form, you know, just show that this is the way I want to go. Yeah. You know, I tried to make a phone call by the, you know, coin machine, you know, I never dying to because I don't know how to die that. So I end up with a two big suitcase on the, the taxi driver dropped me on the campus. I don't know where to go. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was an interesting experience, I would say. <laughs> Did you have any fears back then, just landing in a new world like that? You are too busy to fear because you worry about how to survive, <laughs> how to find a place to stay. <laughs> How to uh, how to uh, communicating right? How to, how At to least I found my department right. That's the yeah. day, you know. Then I found my home. <laughs> There's an interview where I read where you talked about a professor later on at UPenn, University of Pennsylvania, who advised you to stay true to, and I'm quoting here: the spirit of collegiality, always be humble and willing to share and learn from others. Unquote. How has that advice served you over the course of your career? Massively. That professor who actually gave me the first job at Penn. Who is this? His name is uh, Britton Chance. He is a giant in science, in medicine, and in sports. You know, speaking of Britton Chance, I got to say this because Olympics is over, right? Only recently. He's not only amazing scientist, he's also Olymp- Olympic champion. Ah. He won the 1952 sailing gold medal in Helsinki. He's also the just amazing, amazing scientist. So I treasured every moment I had with him when I was at Penn. And he's a device that is literally exactly the device he gave me and served me so well. Because it's almost like uh, you, you think about it. In a uniquely, I'm a chemist in a cancer center. First Rosal Park, then UPenn than Princess Margaret. I'm a chemist in a cancer center ever since my PhD years. This collegiality is how I actually embraced myself and took advantage of the beautiful environment, true multidiscipline. The research program, research question is built on clinical question from the clinicians treating like a frontline clinician, say treating patient, they feedback, this is a clinical question I need to address. This is unmet clinical need I addressed. I build a program to essentially focus, to take advantage of that. And that is really the, you know, without the collaboration, without the collegiality, I'm nothing. There is literally, I got nothing, right? <laughs> so my goal of developing clinical translatable technology platform is in my blood. You are actually mid-career, correct? How <laughs> do you now mentor students and people in your lab? This is probably the most proudest. I'm most proud of not just, I think the, the mentorship is the one which I'm most proud of. You know, my students call themselves gangsters. <laughs> because my name is Gan, right? They call them ah, gangsters. I get it. Yeah, but it's actually an interesting story because there used to be a medical biophysics. We have these Olympics, department Olympics. The student form a team. My students are so close, so close to each other and also so close to me. And then a student had one idea, say a very wild idea, said they want to call themselves gangsters. 
they print a T-shirt with my face on it, <laughs> with my uh, hat, baseball hat this way, called, you know, Guns Against GZ Lab, Gangster Lab. You know, it was such a hit. And they actually use that for late on, we're using that call, uh, for the Terry Fox run for the fundraising team. And I remember that Fox family really liked the Pofazonti, like this gangster team. <laughs> so it's like uh, almost like become identity, right? I really, I think what I'm most proud of is I train next generation of independent thinkers and doers because not everyone can become faculty members, but they were becomes tremendously valuable into the society. I run a very diverse, both culturally and literary group. I have a student over the year from over like 12 countries, right? Half of my students, almost half of them women, and many of them becomes like a professor like myself. Even just this month, I got like, I was tweeting last Twitter like a few days back. I was very happy because even this month, I have a three former student become professors in U.S., in Canada, and in Chile. And all women. It's like my crowning achievement. is like my student doing so well. <laughs> That's, I think, probably is a, I hope they will become my legacy in the future. <laughs> it's, it's a great measure and tribute to gangster Gang Zhen. <laughs> I'm curious about how you approach failure because we are not taught how to deal with failure in life. And that is a part of science. Yeah. How do you navigate that world of failure? It's really about perception. I treat failure as opportunity. Failure used to be means you are in the dead end, right? And the dead end is always, often is in the less traveled road where the opportunity and risk coexist. If you can do everything based on exactly what you plan for, that's more like uh, engineering. And I like to use an engineering approach to solve complex biology problems. If you don't take the failure, if you don't try to find a clue in the failure, why you fail, you never find something new, right? Like, for example, let me give you probably the best example is uh, as we are on the Pofason, right? Pofason is a failure coming from. We want to load porphyrin into a lipid nanoparticle, we failed, right? Then we want to come up with a final way to load more, right? Then we came up with say, okay, lipid is a fat, porphyrin is a pigment. Put a pigment together with a fat, the fat will like the pigment fat better. <laughs> then the pofosome discovered. So without the failure, there is no serendipitous discovery of pofosome. And I was just going to ask you, <laughs> in, in your world, does luck or, or serendipity play a role in research? Huge, right? But the, not just luck. is how you take advantage of your luck. I see. Luck has presented itself every, all the time. It's most likely in the failure. It is you have to identify, take advantage of the luck, which is, you know, the lightning struck. If you don't catch it, like, uh, frankly, you're out of luck, right? <laughs> you cannot count on luck. You're, you're really hoping the luck will strike. But that's how you, how you have to uh, get ready to catch it. You're a pure scientist. You work exclusively in the lab. How do you keep patients top of mind? For me, it's an easy answer, right? <laughs> because as a chemist in a cancer hospital for like 26, 27 years, I have a, my mandate. The mandate is make something useful for patient. But what's really different is when I come to Canada, come to Princess Margaret, is not in the environment, just in the cancer hospital. You're not working in a silo. You are bombarded with question, clinical question, unmet need from my all close collaborators, all the clinicians, right? And let me just give you probably the best example I can think about it. One of the urologists, you know, John Trendenberg, he actually 
challenged me once. He said, your portfolio is great. You can do ablation, you can do other things. So as a bunch of other ablation technique, like high field, like IF, he said, my biggest problem is not just how to ablate the tumor, but how to monitor the temperature, right? How to not overheating it. I, right now, I have my dedicated MI magnet for the patient to do it. But you know how long for the need a regular patient waiting for the waiting time to get the knee exam for MI. Nobody has a privilege to get treating all the patient in the MI magnet. So can you take the patient out of magnet? Then your technique will be truly discernible to go everywhere. He said, can you come up with an agent, a new professor that can not only have a safety threshold valve, but also can guide itself without MI, right? That's what I came up with this uh, thermostat idea using the photoacoustic, a new way, ultrasound, you know, optical way to take the patient out of the magnet, right? So when you are having research question framed based on the clinical questions, you already have the patient on top of your mind. So you know full well the urgency of better treatments, better cures for patients. How do you balance or reconcile that urgency with the fact that science takes time? I know that so well. Patient is virtual and science has to run its course. Think about it, Paul from 2011. Now it's 2021. If I don't persist, don't work hard, and don't let the science run its course, we will not be able to, on the knocking on the door of the finally translating to patient, right? It's just the, you know, a lot of hard work, man, <laughs> and the collaboration and the team. I mean, in the end, it's really the collegiality, the collaboration. You are as good as your team, right? When I have the best thing in the world, we can solve all the problems, right? But it takes time. It just takes time. Do you feel pressure? Yeah, because I'm, every year I told everyone, next year I will be impatient. I've been, speak, I've been talking that for the last five years now. I'm still <laughs> saying next year. But this time I think is, a, I hope this is, a, this is it. <laughs> Why do you do what you do, Yang? Before that life-striking moment in Buffalo, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> right? But after the moment, 27 years ago, I know exactly what I want to do, right? I want to do something. I want to, in my lifetime, I can creating some technology which can apply and to be you know, used even as a part of standard of care to actually contributing to the cancer patient whether for the quality of life or for their, uh, for their survival, right? So now this is a very easy answer because uh, I mean, I consider myself so lucky. I got introduced to the cancer research from so young. And I take that as, uh, as my, you know, the gift from the above. <laughs> know what I'm doing is a gift. What does your family think of what you've done, your achievements to date? Well, they were more urgent than I do. They always said, how can I still not be impatient? Every year they said, I don't want to listen anymore of your discovery. Tell me when is it will be impatient. <laughs> so you have pressure. I have a your, pressure your, everywhere. Pressure <laughs> from your and outside. <laughs> they must be proud. Yeah, but they said... Uh, they were until I have an impatient and they will withhold their judgment. <laughs> that is pressure. What should we look for next from you, gang? What, what should be, what do you think we'll be reading about next? I would say in maybe two words, beyond light. Um, so far, the Porphosone worked its best as a light-based technology. But light has limited penetration deaths, as I mentioned, even though they can compensate by the fiber, it's still a very technology, technology burden is high. 
So what I'm actually, one of the things the lab is working on very heavily on is to bring integrating ultrasound, X-ray, which are much more deep penetrating technology into the, with together with the porphyrin nanotechnology. And that should be uh, one of the key interesting frontier the lab is working on. Second, drug delivery, especially the RNA medicine. We want to integrating porphyrin as a control and trigger for more precise, more efficient RNA medicine. And that is happened to be a hot area. So we are working on that as well. Third is probably a targeted radionuclide therapy. Remember I mentioned porphyrin chelating metal. Hemoglobin has iron, chlorophyll has magnesium. And we show we can do the PET by copper 64. We have now a new type of porphyrin can chelating many different kinds of lanthanides, which allow us to creating a new radio pharmaceuticals, which can deliver alpha particle therapy, emitter, beta, OJ electron, essentially we can do uh, working on the radio therapeutics. I think that's the probably the three most active area. Hopefully, the earlier you will hear from me, from, from me, probably the the more success in this area we are making. <laughs> and we'll let your parents know. <laughs> Dr. Gang Zhen, award-winning senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Thanks so much for sharing your groundbreaking research with us and continued success. Pleasure, thank you. Dr. Zhang's research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to his pioneering medical research, please go to www.thepmcf, that's the pmcf.ca, and click on the Donate Now button. And for more on our podcast, go to the website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca, and let us know what you think. We crave feedback. That's a wrap for this edition of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.